Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of July 6th. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Today we're going to talk about some of the findings in a poll that we designed and implemented that was released this week, and I'm joined by my primary and invaluable collaborator in that poll, Josh Blank, who is research director of the Texas Politics Project. Have you caught up on your sleep at least somewhat, Josh? Somewhat, somewhat, but only a little. There's always sleep to catch up on. Yeah, I know the feeling. Okay, so I want to talk about the two main areas of the poll this week. That is the impact and attitudes related to the COVID-19 pandemic in Texas, which we've been talking about a lot for obvious kinds of reasons in recent weeks, and a battery that we did on race. I thought it might be helpful for people to know just a little bit about the backdrop of this poll. And people can find all of the results, document, thousands of graphics, literally, at the Texas Politics Project website, which is at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And, you know, initially we wanted to follow up on the April poll that we did as part of our ongoing partnership with the Texas Tribune. That poll was designed, given the timing, to to focus primarily on what was at that point the emerging pandemic. Um, And there was a lot of uncertainty then, but from, you know, I think a considerably different perspective than we're in now, than we're experiencing now. At that point, the worst of the pandemic was not in Texas, and state and local government seemed to be largely in a preemptive or preventative mode. The case count wasn't very high here at that point, though it was rising. As it became more clear that the pandemic, the economic impact of it, the politics around it were going to continue to dominate public life as we went through May, really late April and May, We plotted a follow-up to that poll, but then in that period, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, we thought that it was important to add issues of race and policing to the poll. So what we emerged with is a huge amount of data on, you know, really the preeminent topics that are dominating public life in the country and with Texas now one of the epicenters of the pandemic dominating public life in Texas. So there's a lot to talk about and we're going to try to unpack uh, some of the things that are in the poll. We'll never get to it all. Let's. I think we should start with the COVID stuff, Josh. So, you know, you and I were talking before the podcast and, and one of the one of the central themes in the initial discussions, and we just released, we're, as we record this on Tuesday, we just released the COVID data uh, on Monday morning yesterday, is sorting out what seems on the surface like a tension, if not a contradiction, between two of the key streams of results that we see in the top lines anyway. And that is, on one hand, clear evidence that in a lot of domains, Texans' concern about the pandemic, when we ask them how they concerned they are about various aspects of it, seem to be declining or becoming at least less intense. 
And yet, on the other hand, their evaluations of the governmental efforts to contain the virus have gone down remarkably. I mean, you know, how do you sort of begin to cut at that? Well, I think, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the way you set this up at, at the beginning, right? And it's something that we talk about in polling all the time, which is that any sort of survey is is always a snapshot in time. And so ultimately, when we, you know, assessed all these attitudes in April, this was at a point of a lot of fear, and fear is a lot of uncertainty, right? And so I think what we were witnessing at that time was, as you had pointed out, both a reflection of the I think what was going on on the ground here, which is that we were looking to states like New York, we were looking to the Pacific Northwest and thinking, my God, it's going terribly there. Whereas in Texas, it, it hadn't really begun yet in any sort of large scale way in terms of by begun, I mean, sort of the pandemic hadn't really had extensive community spread. We weren't really, you know, in any sort of threat of the hospitals being overrun or anything like that. So people were, were, were one, I think, sort of looking and saying, you know, on the evaluative side, hey, we're doing pretty OK here relative to what's out there. At the same time, we knew a lot less about the virus. So when people were looking at the virus, I'm saying, saying again, in April, I think people were a lot more, there's a lot more uncertainty about how easy it was to catch the virus, whether you were going to catch it by, you know, touching packaging or by something in the mail versus whether you had to be in an enclosed space with someone for an extended Yeah, we were time. still sterilizing our Amazon boxes at that point. Right, we were still, exactly. We were still sterilizing our Amazon boxes in April, Right. So you go and you jump ahead to June now, and, and, and a lot of things have changed, right? So on the ground, you see, you know, again, obviously case counts increasing in Texas dramatically. Hospitalizations are increasing dramatically. In between April and now, we ostensibly opened the state up for business. And so a lot of the restrictions that had been sort of spearheaded by local governments had been reversed over that time period. I was wondering it's what to, verb you were going to use when you said reversed, I was, because we could say- I was, Countermanded, undone. I, I know. I was relaxed. I, I was running through. I had a, I had like four others in my head. I was kind of running through there. I was trying to think. Eh, what's the What's the appropriate one? No, that was. Here? I thought that, that's a good choice. We'll I say reversed. It's It's neutral. Um, and so you know, here we are in June, and things have changed. I think on the one hand, we know a lot more about the virus, right? And so I think you know there is some reason to believe on its own people's concerns should be a little bit less and people's behavior should be a little bit more, uh, you know, let's say appropriate in terms of the concern that they show for their actions and what's safe and what's not safe. On the other hand, things are objectively going a lot worse here in terms of, you know, the actual experience of the coronavirus in the state. And so I think, you know, the thing that's sort of interesting to us that we're trying to sort of unpack, again, accepting the fact that there are limitations with two snapshots in time is sort of, you know, to some extent kind of like, where do those lines cross? And by which I mean, you know, are people expressing a reasonable decline in their concern because, you know, they know more? Or are people expressing, you know, again, over the month of June, which is basically the time in which we expect that most of these new cases that we're now experiencing today were actually starting to spread, well, that's when we measured what people were doing and, and, again, what people were saying what they were doing and what they were saying they were doing was they were living life a lot more normally than they had been in April. And that's sort of what is, you know, partially contributed to the surge in cases. So it's not really yeah. inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, a couple of things about that. One, you know, I, we should note for people that the poll was in the field at, at the time that it was getting harder and not, you know, this is another topic we can talk about, when it was getting harder to deny that things were actually going very wrong here. We were in the field from June 19th to the 29th, and 
if you look back at you know where the curve really started climbing and the numbers started getting bigger and Texas started getting more attention in the national media and in the statewide media, you know, the debate over how the state was handling it, you know, the you know, whether we should have opened up or not was really kind of getting decided in that period. And that well, and it was during that period that we actually that the the or actually reversed the the slowed and then to some extent reversed the shutdown orders around the state. And I think that, you know, to to get back to the that core, like how do you reconcile this sort of we're not expressing as much concern, but we're also disappointed in the way that the, the government is handling it, is is that people internalized that in a line that's very big right now and that actually the White House I I'm reading is is experimenting with putting out there as you know their next message of for uh, 24 hours is this is a long-term problem we're going to be in it for the long haul and you know we asked the the question and a question one of the questions we asked in both april and at the end of june was you know how much longer do you think it'll be before things get back to normal and the kind of center of people's expectations shifted much more in the longer term direction in that interval. And I think in some ways that's the connective tissue between this idea that, you know, look at some level, putting myself in the head of some respondent, I'm not as concerned as I was, but I am like not happy. Expectations about this being over and how it's going to affect my life have changed, particularly in terms of time. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing that you have to account for here is the fact that people have changed their behaviors in fundamental ways. So when they're evaluating, again, sort of, you know, what's normal, and you can imagine me putting normal in quotes now, that definition has moved. And so, I mean, I think that's the other piece of this too, which is that, you know, you're seeing people a lot less concerned necessarily about contracting it. Some of that is because they know more about the virus. Some of that is because in some cases they don't believe the virus is actually a threat. And again, that's a, a smaller share of people, but that's important. I can maybe come back to that. Some people, as I said, you know, just know more. And some people, but a lot of people have adjusted their behavior. So ultimately, you know, you go across the pole and you find, you know, the vast, vast majority of Texans are avoiding large groups. The vast majority of Texans are wearing masks. The vast majority of Texans say that they're washing their hands more frequently and avoiding touching their faces and really just avoiding people, you know, again, that they're not familiar with. And so ultimately, people are responding differently now than they may have been in April. And the reality is they've gotten used to it in a lot of places. So, I mean, what's normal now is different for people. I mean, the other, I think, sort of big battery that we asked, uh, or one of the other big batteries in this was we asked people, across 16 sort of activities, is it safe or is it not safe to do this right now? And they range from going grocery shopping, getting a haircut, going to work, staying at a hotel, going, going to church, to bar. going to a restaurant, going to a bar, going to a gym, fine. So a lot of different activities. And, you know, I think one of the sort of overarching takeaways from that is that, you know, of the 16 activities we asked about, only five of them did a majority of Texans say it's safe to do. And only by a little bit. So 72% said it was safe to go grocery shopping, 59% think it's safe to get a haircut, 55% think it's safe to go to work, 54% think it's safe to vote, that one's complicated, we'll set that aside, 50% say it's safe to stay in a hotel. The other nine items we asked about, less than a majority thought it was safe. Now, what this tells me, and you get to say, how do you strike this with the sort of decreasing concern? Well, I think part of the decreasing concern is a reflection of the fact that people are right. not, in, you know, they may be going out more than they were in April, 
yeah. but they're not doing the same complement of no, activities. They've been, yeah, they, they've, inter- they've internalized the new behaviors and the risks, and it's working on their concern. They may not like the fact that they have to do that, and was you know, and and perhaps wish that it wasn't that way. And you know, when you ask, you know, hey, how do you feel about people's efforts to make things better? They're kind of going well. I've adjusted, but I don't feel like they're doing a good job of it, of making things better. Now, they may well, expect them to do that or not, but, you know, I mean, I, I think that, see, that we see some of the decrease in those approval well, rating, I mean, ratings coming from that. And not to get too into the politics of it, although we do, that's kind of what we do. I mean, well, I think, I think let's get into the politics of I mean, We do need to cover that. I mean, I mean, because one, one of the other things that helps square this is that when you go down below the top line levels, there are cross currents. You know, we'll just say it based primarily on, or you know, most evident in data divided by partisanship. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, across the board, you know, when we talk about declines in concern, I mean, Democrats saw a decline in their level of concerns around the coronavirus, but nothing like Republicans. And same thing, you know, with behaviors, I'd say. So, just sort of at the top line, just to kind of, you know, you'd kind of mentioned something just before here. I just want to hit on one result. You know, we asked people whether it was more important to control the spread of the virus, even if it hurts the economy, or whether it was more important to help the economy, even if it hurts attempts to contain the spread of the virus. A majority of Texans thought it was more important to control the spread of the virus than to help the economy, 53% to 38%. But where where 88% of Democrats said that it was important to control the spread of the virus, a majority of Republicans, 65%, said it was more important to help the economy. So one, I mean, that's part of the pressure behind, I think, a lot of attempts by the political leadership to move the state in the direction of opening. But you combine that with these lower levels of concerns, and particularly among Republicans. You know, asked if the COVID uh, pandemic was a significant crisis. Uh, In April, 66% of Texans said so, 57% said so in June. Democrats remained essentially unchanged. For Republicans, it dropped from 48% saying it was a significant crisis to 29%. You know, the share of Republicans who said that they were not very or not at all concerned about community spread increased from 27% to 44%. So almost half said that they were basically not concerned about the spread of the coronavirus in the community. Almost half said they were not concerned about contracting the coronavirus, which was, again, an almost doubling of the percent who said they were not concerned. You know, and at the same time, we get to the politics of this. About one in five Texans basically report not wearing a mask today when they leave their home. That goes up to about a third of Republicans. So there is a political dynamic here, and you don't see it in other areas. You don't see it sort of manifesting in race very clearly. You don't see it manifesting in location as clearly, so urban, suburban, rural. But in partisanship, you see this huge split in the way that uh, people are responding to this virus. Right. Although the one place you do see it, it have a ethnic and racial component where you see differences is an impact, right? Yes. But yeah, but in terms of concern and, and behaviors, it does seem that when you look for explanatory drivers just at the surface level, and we've not done you know extensive analysis on this, partisanship is the most obvious thing and, and the most durable across a wide range of results. Yeah, going back to that, you know, what's safe and unsafe to do, I said there were 16 items. A majority of Texans said it was safe to do five of those items. For Democrats, a majority only believed it was safe to go grocery shopping. None of the other 15 items that a majority of Democrats feel like it was safe to do. For Republicans, they felt like it was safe to do nine of the 16 items. A majority said it was safe to do nine of the 16 items we asked about. Uh, And so, you know, you're just seeing very different responses here, uh, which makes, you know, the politics of it and also just even the practicality of, of combating the pandemic very challenging. 
Right. And so I think, you know, there, you know, as we look at the, then the two explanations for how we're reconciling these cross currents, part of it is, you know, I think the cognitive piece you're talking about, the kind of behavioral, the, the impact of behavior and, and over time, just adjusting your level of concern. But there are also other cues affecting that. And some of those cues are partisan and, and they are coming from, from the national leadership. They're coming from the president, I would argue, you know, most powerfully and allied messengers, you know, that are, that are reinforcing that dynamic among the people that I think are less concerned and are engaging in a higher level of behavior outside of probably the ideal norms of containment. Yeah. And I would add to this, you know, I think, I think, you know, I don't, we have too much time to jump into this and we want to hit on some other things, but you know, the idea that this is solely a partisan story, even though it's most evident as partisan and partisan results troubles me a little bit. Cause I actually think it's, it's a little bit wrong and also unhelpful, you know, across all these numbers that we're talking about here, the reality is, is that, you know, the vast majority of Republicans in most cases are still engaging in most of the sort of social distancing guidelines right. that are being proposed. It's actually a stubborn minority that aren't. The other piece of it is, is that I don't think that, you know, you sort of, let's say today I'm a Democrat and I wake up tomorrow and I'm a Republican. It's not because I'm a Republican that all of a sudden I stop wearing masks. Well, right. right? That's it's a not good like, point. It's not like putting on a pin that says, oh, well, I'm going to the GOP convention today. I guess I, you know, should show everyone how I yeah. feel. The reality is it's a combination of a lot of different things. It has to do with sort of, you know, again, ideological predispositions towards sort of government mandates, but it also has to do with assessments of risk. And I think what ends up happening, you know, in terms of how likely you are to contract the disease, and that's a relationship to, you know, your own health situation, where you live, what your you own do. So- your own social position. Your own social position, sh- all these you know, things. I mean, I believe and we have to link that your health position really is linked to your social position in a lot of ways. And to the extent that, you know, you're also then taking your own position and lining it up with your sort of your assessment of the dangers of the coronavirus, both in and of itself and also the danger of contracting it, that's where the information environment comes in. And and the way that Republicans and Democrats seek out different information sources alters, I think, the risk assessment that people make, which we then see in these sort of assessments. It becomes most manifest in partisanship. But I personally don't believe that it's it's not again, it's not a Republican thing to say, I'm not going to wear a mask. It's the fact that I happen to be a Republican. I find out I'm getting a lot of information about the fact that this virus is overblown or even in some cases, maybe it doesn't exist at all. And then I line that up with my own views of my own lifestyle and my own risks. And then I make a decision. Yeah. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, essential in Republican identity that makes you less cautious or makes you decide you're not going to wash your hands more. But there are things that accumulate within your social identity as a mm-hmm. Republican that can be decomposed into the things you're talking about, you know, in, you know, where you get your information, who you socialize with, what your social position is. All those things kind of accrue into that. Before we move on to race, I do want to hit a little bit about the thinking about the future because it does fall out of this. Well, I was going to say it doesn't mean it's not consequential. Stuff. I mean, yeah. right. So, I mean, as I said, how, having now said, hey, well, look, it's how you is- want it's, it's how you understand it rather than the fact. The differences are pretty incontrovertible in the data. They've been consistent across not only our data, but the data nationally. So we're not saying it's irrelevant. It's just, but I think it is what, you know, how you understand the mechanisms by which you arrive at these attitudes or, and how you understand them and what you make of them. So let's look at, con- at the future and look at the attitudes on contact tracing. So, you know, we put together a battery with the four 
main components on, on contact tracing. We told respondents, just in case the term was unfamiliar, we gave them a very neutral reading of what contact tracing is, a definition. And you can see that in the, in the, the, the poll documents. And, and got interesting results. And, and obviously, we asked about this because contact tracing from the very or, or close to the very beginning has been advertised as a key component of at least controlling the impact of the virus. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually in many ways, once uh, any of the restrictions that were laid down by the cities in particular were lifted, this was, was proposed as the primary means by which uh, Texas was going to combat the coronavirus was that, you know, there were going to be hot spots right. that were going to pop up, but we were going to have contact tracing teams that were going to go in. And this is, and, 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 and the execution of this contact tracing, you know, frankly, the state, like in a lot of places, but certainly in Texas has underperformed. We're not seeing a lot of contact tracing where we are seeing it. It's not, it's not being executed very well, generally speaking. Well, and it requires a lot of cooperation. And, and the thing is, normally when you look at policy items, if you find, you know, 76% or 71% of people in favor of something or supportive for something, you'd say, well, that's a slam dunk. Not so in the domain of public health, where ultimately you need extremely high rates of cooperation, of testing, of vaccinations. Ultimately, you can't have slight majority support of something. So we basically asked, would you be willing to agree to a mandatory 14-day self-quarantine if you test positive? 76% of Texans said they would. 71% that they'd provide a list of all the people they've recently come into contact with. 66% said they'd agree to weekly testing. But However, only 40, however <laughs> only 46% said that they would provide access to their cell phone location data if they test positive. And then going to the partisanship element here, 63% of Republicans compared to 91% of Democrats would agree to a mandatory 14-day quarantine. 57% of Republicans compared to 88% of Democrats would provide a list of people they come into contact with. 54% of Republicans compared to 83% of Democrats would agree to weekly testing. When it comes to providing that cell phone data, not terribly popular with anybody, Right. 35% of Republicans and 60% of Democrats said that they would provide this data. So if you think that technology will save us, from the coronavirus, it does not look good, at least in Texas. Right. Well, you know, technology might be able to save you, but not the way people use it. <laughs> right. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard not to, it's, it's, it's gallows humor, you know, <laughs> no doubt. But, you know, to say, you know, it's fine, you can take some of my blood once a week, but you're not getting in my damn cell phone. Sorry, yeah. not, gonna, not gonna happen. Right. So, you know, there's that. And then there was also, we also asked people whether, if a vaccine oh. to the coronavirus was discovered and made available, and we even put in there at low cost, so as there not to be economic noise in the response, would you be interested in getting a vaccine? And, and only in the 50s, as I recall. 59%. Right? 59% yeah, 50, of Texans said yes. I think it was about, you know, a, a slightly larger minority said they would, and then the, the remainder said they weren't sure. I think about 20% said they didn't. they weren't sure. The main right. point here is that, you know, We've been sitting here, if you've been sitting at home thinking, boy, when is a virus or when is a vaccine going to emerge so we can kind of go back to a more normal case? Well, ultimately, if you look around at your fellow Texans, almost half of them are not sure if they would even get it. Right. And there's, you know, so this goes to this, this a term I'm even, I'm hesitant to raise right now because I'm so laden like so many other things. But the idea here, you know, of, of when you start vaccinating people is to achieve a level of herd immunity. You don't have to get 100%, but you need to get pretty close. And it varies a lot by- it varies by the disease. By, by the disease. And I, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but a lot of the research that we're seeing right now is this is a very highly contagious disease. And I, I 
pretty sure that the level, the higher the level of contagiousness, all things being equal, probably the higher the level of herd immunity. And that makes this an issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some, I mean, those two results in, in some ways are, are, are kind of the most harrowing of everything we saw in the sense that because they take, you know, they address the two things that a lot of people are, I think, at a more expert level, the contact tracing is what people are putting a lot of stock in and saying, if we can get contact tracing in place, that's really the way we get a handle on this even if we can't get a vaccine. And then there's, you know, I think the more common sense things, you know, I mean, I've talked to people and you see people on social media and the media going, hey, I'm just going to hunker down until they get a vaccine. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, know, not so much. And to bring it back to the politics for one more second before we move on to a, a less complicated topic. I mean, I think this is the difficulty that, you know, Republicans in general and, and Republican statewide leaders in Texas are facing, uh, and in particular the governor here. The governor is basically taking the position as the the state's czar in many ways on, on this pandemic response. And ultimately, there's been a lot of distrust of the government generally, but also of even basic facts surrounding the coronavirus. And now that we're at a point where we really need people to be as cooperative as they possibly can within reason, you actually have a a large share of Texans who've been informed over the last couple months that they shouldn't be concerned, that, you know, most efforts sort of to combat the virus are government overreach. And this is going to make combating the virus that much more difficult. And it's not clear, you know, what the path forward is or whether, you know, as the numbers get worse, if, if, if attitudes change drastically, they might. But, you know, currently, you know, it seems as though these attitudes, say from April to June, I would say, you know, these attitudes reflect as much in some ways the change in the actual environment on the ground in terms of, you know, what we know about the virus and how it's going on the one hand. But I think they also reflect the political dynamic that we've been watching unfold over the last couple months that really centers on how seriously to take this virus in a way that's kind of leading us into this sort of dangerous space that's very difficult to imagine a path out of, at least in the short term. Yeah, I mean, at a basic level, if you're to the extent that people aren't some share of people are not seeing this as a dire threat, it changes the weight when they're man when they're thinking about trade offs. And so. You know, if you're trading off the privacy in your phone and having people find out where you go and what you're doing versus, you know, fighting a disease you don't think is that serious, you weigh the trade-offs differently, same with the vaccine. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, so let's talk a little bit about race let's and what we'll do is we'll, we'll, be, we'll begin and talk about some of the, we'll talk about this and next week we'll start with this um, and drill down into this further. So obviously we wanted to do... We wanted to probe attitudes about race in the in the wake of George Floyd's, Floyd's killing and the protests and the we can't say unprecedented, but a you know a frank and and broad and broad discussion of race that's probably you know reached uh, breadth and depth that we haven't seen certainly since the you know the civil rights period and in the immediate aftermath of that. So you know for a lot of people it's 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 certainly the most serious and sustained discussion about race and racial discrimination and particularly the role of African-Americans and their position in American society than we than, than a lot of people that are probably under 40 have ever seen in their lifetime. Yeah. So as, as a basic setup for this, we kind of went a little bit more, you know, I don't want to use this the wrong way, kind of a little bit more social science-y by going and really bringing back out our discrimination battery 
which doesn't get directly to the issues at hand, you know, even though we did ask questions about the protests and about the police. But um, we also have this battery that we've used three or four times now in the past and is adopted. People have used similar things where we give people a list of 10 social groups. You know, it's a mixture of racial and gender groups, racial, ethnic, and gender groups. Ask them to assess how much discrimination that they experience. And then after they've assessed each group individually, we then ask them which group they think experiences the most discrimination in the U.S., That's always been a fascinating, complicated exercise. And we got interesting results this time, particularly compared to what we've seen in the past, right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we ask people, as you said, whether, you know, each group faces a lot, some, not very much, or or basically no discrimination in the U.S. today. So looking at basically what share of people said that each group faces a lot, I mean, one of the things that's notable, and and the last time we asked this, this set of questions was in 2018, and at that time... The plurality of Texans said that transgender people and Muslims faced a lot of discrimination. 44% said they face a lot of discrimination. Only 35% said African Americans. Asked again in 2020, it goes up to 44%. And this was true, you know, you go again, the idea here is to have them consider the amount of discrimination each group faces. And then we say, well, which group faces the most discrimination? And it's not a contest you want to win, but this is this is the way that we sort of we sort of think about this to get a sense of, you know, sort of which groups, you know, in some ways have the broadest perception of rightful aggrievement or something. Ultimately, so on this poll, what we found was that overall, 36% of Texans said that African-Americans face the most discrimination, and that was by far the most of any of the groups we tested. Among Democrats, 60% said that African-Americans face the most discrimination, and this was up from 35% in 2018. Republicans are a bit of a different story on this battery, and they and they and they always have been. They've moved in the same direction as everybody else. Broadly speaking, there's a there's a greater you know sort of acknowledgement that African Americans are facing more discrimination. But whether we look at you know ranking each group's amount of discrimination individually, or looking at you know sort of perceptions of which group faces the most discrimination, for Republicans as a group, the group that faces the most discrimination in the U.S. today is actually Christians. Right. 28%, 28% of Republicans say that Christians are the group that's most discriminated against. Or right, are the group the that's most, most discriminated 17% said that whites are the group that's most discriminated against, and 16% said African Americans are the group that's most discriminated against. Those are statistically indistinguishable, but when we go to that other set of questions where we ask about each group, uh, and they're each asked individually, 34% said that Christians face a lot of discrimination, 24% of Republicans said that whites face a lot of discrimination, 14% of Republicans said that African Americans face a lot of discrimination. Setting aside sort of, you know, the you know whether there is some real amount of face discrimination, we have some items that actually touch on that. I mean, I think this ultimately gets it again, sort of, you know, the diverging political responses towards this and the sort of the reality of Democrats moving forward very quickly on different proposals to sort of ameliorate racial injustice, whereas Republicans have been a little bit more, a little bit slower to move forward on this. I mean, I want to highlight one other item outside that discrimination battery, and we can kind of- Well, before you move on, we should just, you know, we have to also have to like, so if you look at them, and when we publish the, the, the podcast, we'll make sure we point to these, to some of this data. If you look at this graphically, you know, the way that you describe that data, you see then that Republicans are distributed among, you know, their views of who are the most, who experiences the most discrimination, you know, are distributed kind of among three or four different categories, as you described, mm-hmm. with, again, with Christians at the at the top of that. If you look at the Democratic sort of distribution, it's much more, there's much more consensus. 
Right. Right. In the sense that, you know, 60% of, of Democrats say that, that African-Americans experience the most discrimination. And so there's not, and 80% you know, it's, it's, say they face a lot. Just it's, right. And so when you look at the policy processes you're talking about and who's moving and who's not, I mean, one wants to be careful about saying setting aside the content, but it is part of what's going on is that, you know, there's a lot more consensus among Democrats as a group of what's going on here. And so then when you go to implement responses, there's just, I mean, I think what this points to is that there's two different things going on. One is perception of the magnitude of the problem then informs, you know, the clarity and your willingness to embrace a solution to that. So well, yeah, and, and we had talked about this previously, but I mean, ultimately there is sort of a question in the wake of, of George Floyd's killing and, and the recent protests and I mean, and honestly, all, all of the other recent killings of African-Americans in the custody of police. But is this, is the response going to be one that focuses on police conduct or is it going to be one that focuses on broader concerns of systemic racism. And I think we tried to, and part of the things I think in terms of setting up a poll to ask about these questions, we were trying to hit both things. We wanted to be attuned to sort of the realities of the politics of the moment around police and race. But at the same time, there's a reason we asked this, this sort of broader discrimination battery because it gives us a sense, a, a real heat check about, you know, just what Texans' perceptions are of discrimination generally. And that's really, and in a state as diverse as Texas, that's really important. Right. And, and, and so then, the, you know, to go and we can close out here, what we saw in that question that we asked about whether the killing, the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the deaths of African-Americans in the custody of police were either isolated incidents or part of a broader problem. And one might, you know, we can unpack in a minute why we asked it exactly that way, mm-hmm. are very consistent with what we see in these discrimination batteries, right? Right. So overall, 49% of Texans said that these killings are signs of a broader problem. 43% said they're isolated incidents. But as you can imagine, there are going to be big partisan differences. 88% of Democrats said that the deaths of African Americans during encounters with police in recent years are signs of broader problems. Only 7% said they're isolated incidents. Among Republicans, 76% said they're isolated incidents versus 15% who said they're signs of a broader problem. So this is sort of the idea of, you know, is this a systemic problem within policing? Let's just, again, setting aside any other institutional concerns, or is this bad apples? And ultimately, I think as, as someone who studies public opinion, I mean, this is one of the questions I was most interested in seeing the result on in this poll, because I think this is ultimately the, these are the, the sort of the, I would say the polar ends of the discussion you see around, again, especially the deaths of African Americans at the hands of the police, which is, is this just a bad, you know, one bad cop, or is this about broader problems. And you can see, I think in this result in particular, that it's very easy to imagine how Democrats would come at this problem and say, well, look, if this is a sign of broader problems in society, we need bigger solutions, broader solutions. For Republicans, if it's isolated incidents, well, then really we just need to reform police practices so that these isolated incidents are minimized, if not erased. I think that's kind of where we are in the policy debate. And so you're going to find, you know, as we've seen in public comments and as we saw in Lots of specific instances. I'm thinking of, frankly, testimony in the Senate and, and Senator Cornyn's response to a discussion of systemic racism. You're going to find somewhere in the range of resistance to a lack of understanding of any kind of discussion of systemic racism in the policy domain and and in the public domain. And I think it's it doesn't bode well for the for the discussion as we move forward, though. I think next week we could, what we'll do is we'll start with talking about race and we'll also, 
you know, put a pin in talking about places where we have seen some movement, mm-hmm. you know, particularly among Republicans, but on, on, you know, among partisans in both sides and kind of assess where that goes. How's that sound? I'm excited. All right. Not well, really. thanks everybody I'm, for yeah, listening. John, well, th- th- let's face I, it. I these like kinds pub- of things like do excite you. It's true. I'm sorry. Um, so, Thanks, Josh, for being here. Thanks for listening. Be safe out there, and we will see you next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.